Well, it's a great privilege to uh, sort of round out the day before our, our panel discussion, and I have the best of all <laughs> subjects uh, to bring it to the Lord Jesus himself, right? How the whole Bible will finish in him who is from beginning to end. Last night when we began, uh, Ryan started with Luke 24. I'm going to go back there. So I turn to Luke 24. It's a familiar story. The way to Emmaus. It's one of my most favorite stories in all of the Bible. In fact, I have a painting that my parents gave to me uh, that I have at my house where you've got Jesus pointing upward and these two disciples listening to him eagerly as a depiction on the way to Emmaus. Now what is so important about this is that Jesus comes alongside. There's a, some sense of, of kind of humor here where he comes alongside. They don't uh, recognize him. Uh, these two disciples are terribly, terribly downcast. They just can't figure out, as most of the disciples didn't do until uh, the resurrection, what on earth is going on, right? They did not seem to have, they should have had, but they did not seem to have a notion of a Messiah who would be crucified. Even Peter, you think of Peter's confession in uh, Matthew 16, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, and then Jesus goes to speak about his death. No, 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 you can't do that. And Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan, right? You're not speaking the truth of God, you're speaking that which is there. I have come to lay down my life. Well, these two downcast disciples, even after the resurrection, they're hearing reports from some of the women who've said the tomb is empty and they still haven't put the pieces together. And Jesus comes alongside them in verse 17. What are you discussing together? They are downcast. Cleopas says, are you only a visitor? In Jerusalem, don't you know what's happened? I mean, think of all that's transpired over this weekend. What things, he asks. There's the kind of humor. Come on, tell me what's going on about Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God, all the people. Chief priests handed him over to be put to death. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The third day, he's now... Our women, we can't find him. They say he's been risen. They can't put it together. And Jesus comes alongside in verse 25. And there is an indictment here. <laughs> but he's, I'm sure, a loving indictment as he talks to them. He says, oh, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? Where does he begin? Well, he doesn't just say, here, I'm here. <laughs> Look at me. Instead, he says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. And then, of course, later on, as he's with his disciples, he'll add the Psalms, the writings. That's the old division of the Old Testament canon. The law, the prophets, the writings and all of that, he explained what was said in the scriptures concerning himself, right? And so he's unpacking for them the Christ had to suffer, the Christ had to enter his glory. This is what the Old Testament 
was actually teaching, anticipating, and looking forward to. Well, they go along a bit further. They break bread together. He disappears. They realize, finally, this was Jesus. And they say in verse 32, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us? while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures. Well, I remember years ago hearing this as a young child uh, and thinking, boy, I wish that had been saved, that message. It would be great to, to listen to it, see how Jesus opened up the scriptures. And then I began to realize we do have this message. <laughs> uh, we do have the message, particularly in the entire New Testament, right? The New Testament teaches us, and we have the Old Testament, on how we should then see Christ rightly from the law, the prophets, and all the writings, right? And interestingly here, Jesus hasn't, the New Testament's not being written, but as it is, it's going to unpack all these things. He goes to the Old Testament. This is the same as what Paul will say in 2 Timothy 3, that the Old Testament is God-breathed. It is leading you to salvation in Christ Jesus. It's important to realize, and I think I said this last night, that Jesus doesn't come to us brand new in the New Testament. He comes to us, right, he's the son from eternity, but he comes rooted in the storyline of Scripture, the categories of Scripture, the content of Scripture, the structure of Scripture, the framework of Scripture. That is why we need a whole Bible to give us rightly who this Jesus is. And the whole Old Testament leads to a proper understanding that he had to come. He had to suffer. Now, no doubt 2020 hindsight is wonderful. But Jesus is teaching us here in Luke 24 that it legitimately is there in the Old Testament. And part of our task and part of this conference is to then try to show in very brief form where Jesus would have gone, how he would have unpacked the scriptures, how the Old Testament has led to now an understanding of who he is and what he has come to do and so on. Scripture is God's word written, we said last night. It unfolds for us an eternal plan centered in Christ. It starts in creation. And God, the triune God from all eternity, creates history, creates a world, he creates a stage. That stage is not just there in creation, but it, everything in creation is foundational to understanding his plan, who God is, who humans are, who Adam is. We learn about Adam's disobedience. We see that first promise. And as the covenants unfold, that we begin to learn more and more how God is going to save, who is going to save, what salvation is going to look like. And that is what the covenants unfold for us. Right? Now, so far... We are now at the Davidic Covenant, right? That's what was looked at in last time. And Trent, I think, laid out very, very well here, and it's our conviction that the Old Testament, the biblical covenants from creation through Noah, through Abraham, through the nation of Israel, reach their, he used the mountaintop illustration, I'll just say the epitome of all of the Old Testament covenants, right? In some sense, the promises that you see in 2 Samuel 7 are promises of an eternal kingdom. The language that's applied to the Davidic king is that he will be the son of God. Right? God says, I'll be your father, you'll be my son. David and the kings are the sons. And all of that builds on Israel, 
all the way back to Adam. It's showing you the interrelationship of this promise that centers now in the Davidic promise. In fact, there's a central idea that you see from Adam to David. Adam was an individual who represented the entire race and brought us all down. There will come a seed from him that ultimately is a singular seed. But that singular seed goes through a family, Abraham, a nation, and now the king out of that nation, out of that family line, remains the single one. Right? It focuses again on a single individual, namely the king. And in 2 Samuel 7, the extent of his kingdom is that he will rule the world. That's what was unfolded for us in terms of David seeing that the Davidic promise is for all humanity. Right? Now that makes perfect sense if you put the covenants all the way back to creation. Right? If the Davidic king is the solution to the problem, namely, from the human race, God will overturn the effects of Adam and all that has happened there, then the Davidic king will bring a new creation. The Davidic king will rule the world. He will have an everlasting kingdom. The hope is all found in this king. That's why so much in the Old Testament deals with David. But there's a huge problem. And we've already sort of alluded to that. Trent alluded to that. In Old Testament history, David is given these promises, but he's not the seed. Right? He's not, in the sense, the promised one. Right? He passes it off to Solomon. And Solomon, just for a while, looks like everything is going to be epitomized in him. He's the man of wisdom. He's got Queen of Sheba visiting. The nations are visiting him. It's almost as if the nations are giving deference to him as is promised in the Davidic covenant. Yet, Solomon crashes and burns somewhat like David. Right? And Solomon, the kingdom is divided. The Davidic dynasty lies in waste after David and Solomon, in fact, the 10 northern tribes in 722 are totally obliterated, right? And all you have is the south. And of those Davidic kings, maybe on one hand, you could say some of them are good. No northern kings are good. Few are not bad. Josiah and so on, Jehoshaphat and others are not too bad in the south, yet they are not the righteous one to come. This is why the Psalter, right? So Trent looked at Psalm 72. It's a Psalm of Solomon. But it's very important to realize that that Psalm in 72, which is celebrating the king, the son, who will rule all nations and all kings will bow down to him and he will rule from sea to shining sea, as you have in Psalm 72. When it's given to you in the Psalter, right? The Psalter as an entire collection is put together after the exile. It's very important to realize on the throne, there's no king, right? You read Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a very, very important messianic psalm. God says, I will install my king on my holy hill. And then he says to the kings of all the earth, kiss my son. You better bow down to him. Well, by the time that's put, it's a Davidic psalm. It comes out of the Davidic covenant. But by the time it's put into the Psalter, what's happened to the Davidic kings? Well, Isaiah 11 
gives you an image of what happened to the Davidic dynasty. The Davidic dynasty is given to you like a mighty tree. And what happened to the tree? It was just cut off. So it's as if the kings have disappeared. They're useless, right? How does the end of the Bible end in the history books? Whether it's Chronicles or whether it's Kings, well, you got a Davidic king, sort of. He's a kind of puppet king. Uh, he doesn't rule over anything. And eventually, they're taken into exile. They return from exile, but there's no king on the throne. Prophets are silent, right? Uh, everything is, seems to be not the case. People are crying in the book of Psalms, how long, O Lord? It's very important to read the Psalter as the cry of Israel for the promise of God. Think of Psalm 73, Asaph. Asaph almost stumbles when he looks around him at the nations. Well, he's not looking around at his neighbor and saying, well, they got more than me. That may be true, but that's not the issue here. He's looking at the promises of God. The promises of God say there's going to be a king who will rule the world. There is no king. And he says, what happened, God? Why are the nations? This is what Habakkuk is crying. This is what all the prophets are eventually crying and saying, where are your promises? Is there salvation? You said there was going to be a seed of the woman that ultimately is epitomized in the Davidic king. We don't have one. So how on earth, God, will you keep your promises? Well, that is what the prophets wrestle with, right? So before we get just to Jesus, it's important to look at just the overall message of the prophets the prophets who will build off of these Davidic promises, who come after the failure of the Davidic kings, and they begin to look to the future, and they begin to speak of what is going to happen, how God will keep his promise, how he will be the covenant God who makes promises, keeps promises, and provides, finally, the king. So let's look at the prophets, and then we'll see how this then comes to the Lord Jesus. The prophets. What do I mean by the prophets? Well, I'm primarily thinking of the writing prophets, major prophets, minor prophets, right? So you think of the major prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, Ezekiel, and so on. The minor prophets, the collection, all the way from Hosea and Zechariah and Malachi, right? All of these prophets write either before the Babylonian exile or in the midst of the Babylonian exile or after. Yet what's most significant is all of the prophets write after the Davidic promises. So the Davidic promises are in place. In some sense, the Davidic house is in disarray. The ten tribes are being destroyed from the north. Even the southern tribes are not doing well. And it's in that context that the prophets come and their overall message involves a message of judgment. They basically call the people back and say, you are gonna be judged by God because you violated the covenant. We call it the curses of the covenant will come upon them. Eventually that's what happens to the north, that's what happens to the south in terms of the Babylonian exile. Yet in the midst of that judgment, they offer and it's this glorious hope that now is what will open up in the New Testament and say that glorious hope, those promises that they look forward to has now come in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what do they think in terms of glorious hope? Building on the failure all the way back from Adam to Noah to even Abraham's family to the nation of Israel, there's 
a message they give that has to be kept together. The first thing they say is that the Lord himself can only solve the problem. Right? That is a message that we've seen all the way from creation. Right? God alone is God. He alone can initiate. He alone can save. He alone can create. He alone is the source and standard of, of uh, truth and, and morality and his promises and so on. Only God can save. And the prophets repeatedly say, God must save. God must save. God must save. Don't look to the kings. Don't look to the people. Don't look to the priests. Don't look to the prophets. Ultimately, the Lord himself will save. Yet coupled with that is that the Lord will save through a provision of a king. (laughs) So both of these are true. Now you see these in a number of spots. Turn to Ezekiel 34, right? So in the prophets and all of their doing is they're picking up in some sense the covenantal promises, the storyline of scripture. Salvation will come to us through a seed of the woman, ultimately the king, yet it's the Lord himself who must save. You see this in Ezekiel 34. You can look at in Isaiah as well. Isaiah is full of this where the majestic presentation of Isaiah 40 through 48 is God will come, God will save, God will redeem, and so on, right? But Ezekiel 34 is where you see both of these brought together. This is in the context, Ezekiel, of the exile. Uh, God is now coming to, in verse 1 of Ezekiel 34, the shepherds of Israel. The shepherds of Israel are the leadership. Whatever kings are left, it's the priests that are left, it's the prophets that are left. And the Lord does not have much positive words to say for the leadership of Israel, right? Uh, Things haven't changed much, right? So the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says, woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. And then you have in verse 3 and following statements of just judgment upon the leadership. You read in verse 6, and this of course is picked up in the Gospels. My sheep wandered all over the mountains, and on every high hill they were scattered over the whole earth. No one searched or looked for them. That's what's picked up in the Gospels, and Jesus says, my people are all scattered, right? Well, this comes from Ezekiel. God says the shepherds of Israel have failed, including the kings. Now, what's God going to do? Well, if you look at verse 7 all the way through verse 22, we're not going to read it all, but if you look at it there, I'll point out a number of passages where you constantly see God say, I am going to do something. I will come, I will save, I will judge, I will redeem, and the point that you get is only God can save, right? Only he can remedy the situation. So you think of verse 10. This is what the sovereign Lord says, I am against the shepherds, I will remove them from tending the flock. One little bit later, I will rescue my flock. Verse 11, I myself will search. Uh, you have in verse 12, I will rescue them from places. Verse 13, I will bring them out. I mean, all of these eyes that come through. This is a message that's run all the way through the Bible. Salvation is of the Lord, right? Jonah says that, Jonah 2.9. Salvation is of God. God must save, right? And the whole storyline of the scripture is out of the human race from ourselves. We are not obedient. We cannot save ourselves. Only God can save us, right? 
But then notice, as he then speaks in verse 20, he's still speaking here of, I will judge between fat sheep and lean sheep and so on. Verse 22, I will save my flock. They will no longer be plundered. I will judge one sheep and another. So you have 20 some verses of, I will save, I will save, I will save. And then verse 23, just boom, comes out of nowhere almost. I will place over them one shepherd. And who's he placing over them? My servant David. He will tend them. He will tend them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David will be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Verse 25 is crucial. I will cut a covenant of peace with them. And rid the land of wild beasts. So in this context here, this cutting of a covenant is a reference to the new covenant. All of the prophets speak of a coming of the future of a new covenant age. A new covenant where God will now make a covenant that will bring, we'll see just in a moment in Jeremiah, the forgiveness of sins and a transformed people, that which was not the case in the past, right? But here we have beautifully brought together, I the Lord will save, I will put over them a shepherd. The shepherds of Israel have failed, now a shepherd. So you have the sense of David, a human, a king, yet he is in tandem with the Lord. I the Lord, I my king. This is the father-son relationship that's tied to the Lord and the king. Now, is he speaking here of the historic David? And the answer is no. David is dead and gone. Right? Solomon is dead and gone. Most of the Davidic kings are dead and gone. Right? He is now speaking in the future of a king in David's line. Trent mentioned very well, when the promise is given to David, you will have a kingdom that will last forever. There's only two ways that you can fulfill this. Right? Either you have Solomon, and then he has another son that sits in the throne, and that just goes on in perpetuity. Or you have someone from David's line who rules forever. And it's the second option, which is what actually happens. So Ezekiel lays this out for us. But you have it in other passages as well. Think of Isaiah, right? Isaiah 7. We won't go through all of these areas here, but Isaiah 7 is in the context where King Ahaz, the Davidic king, is useless. (laughs) He doesn't believe God. He's trusting all the kings of the earth. God says through Isaiah to him, O house of David, shaking him. He says, is it too hard for you to believe my word? He says, I'm going to give you a sign that will absolutely shock you. (laughs) I will provide not you, but I'm going to provide another king. And this king will be virgin born. This is Isaiah 7, 14. He will be Emmanuel. He will ultimately bring my reign. And of course, Isaiah 9 builds on this. These are famous Christmas passages where sitting on David's throne will be a king. Yet, he will have the very names of God. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So you see in the Old Testament, the prophets are looking to the Lord to save, but it's always through the king. And we'll see in a moment that this king is starting to become larger than life. You cannot, even in the Old Testament, view this king in the prophets simply as a human king. He is human. 
But he ultimately now begins to take on the names of God and the role of God and do the works of God. And you begin to wonder, who is this king? Psalm 110 is a perfect example of this. David is the author where he says, the Lord, the Lord, the covenant God speaks to my Lord. And you say, well, I thought you're the Lord King, David. No, but David knows that he has one from his line who will be the true king. And what does the Lord say to David's Lord? Sit at my right hand till I make the enemies a footstool for your feet, right? To sit at the right hand of God in the Old Testament and biblical thought is ultimately to share the very throne of God. Well, that's, that's not just merely a human. He is human, but he's more than that. Well, this expectation of the prophets gets bound up with the promise of a king, the promise of a new covenant. Turn to Jeremiah 31. There's all kinds of new covenant passages that uh, the Bible gives to us. Probably the most famous because it's quoted at length in the uh, New Testament is Jeremiah 31. So the overall message of the prophets, judgment upon Israel, yet God will keep his promises. The Lord himself will save, but the Lord will save through the provision of a righteous king. Indeed, Psalm 72 uh, is anticipating that, right? Uh, and that's what they're speaking of. But they tie it to the new covenant, right? Now, Jeremiah 31, as I said, is a very famous new covenant passage. And what is significant about this new covenant passage is a number of things, right? It's part of a whole set of passages in the Old Testament that speak of an everlasting covenant, a new covenant, what God will do in the future. If you put all of the prophets together, there's a whole kind of number of truths that the prophets speak of in terms of the future. We won't look at all of these, but we'll just mention them here as we then turn to Jeremiah 31. The prophets, as they look to the future, will speak of the coming of the king. We've already made mention of that. The Lord and the king will come and bring salvation. They speak of a new exodus, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 40, and so on. They speak in Ezekiel of the making of a new temple. Right? The presence of God will come to the land, a new Jerusalem. They speak of salvation. They speak of the pouring out of the Spirit. That becomes very, very important. The Spirit now takes on in the prophets. So you have references to the Spirit all the way back to creation, the Spirit hovering over creation, the Spirit coming upon leaders and prophets and kings and anointing. Yet in the prophets, there's a concentration that the future king will have the spirit in fullness. Isaiah 11 speaks about the spirit who's on the king in full measure. Right? Uh, Isaiah 42 and 49 and 61 speak of the Lord having the king or the king having the spirit, which Jesus quotes in the New Testament. Yet Jeremiah 31 also picks up something that's very, very important, and we read about it in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, right? And it's particularly verse 34 that we want to zero in on to focus on Jesus, right? Jeremiah says, the Lord says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, 31, the time is coming, so he's looking to the future, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Clearly, he says, it's not like the covenant with their forefathers, right? The old covenant, when I took them out of Egypt. They broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them. 
Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law on their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people, right? There's going to be here a kind of promise of a new people, a transformed people, right? No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. They will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now, so far there has been in this promise of a new covenant, the anticipation of a changed people. They won't be like just the hard-hearted Israel of old. They're going to be transformed. They're going to know God. They're going to have the law written on the hearts. Ezekiel will say that they'll be born of the Spirit and so on and so on. We'll come back to that tomorrow when we look at the church. Yet verse 34 is what grounds this covenant. In saying all of this, he then says... No longer will a man teach his neighbor, a man his brother, no, know the Lord. For, and of course the for here is giving the very grounding. For I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. Now this promise you can't take just sort of lightly, right? This is set in the context of the Old Testament. Set in the context of the covenants. It's set in the context, ultimately, of the problem of sin from Genesis 3. See, we don't take sin very seriously. We have a view of God, uh, often, particularly as we talk with our neighbors and so on, and we have to communicate this with people. Most people of you go on the street and say, you know, well, God, you know, what kind of view of God do you have? You know, he's kind and loving and gentle. And if you do wrong and if you say you're sorry, he'll, he'll uh, you know, he'll forgive you. And, you know, it's his job to sort of forgive and grade on the curve. And he's just like us, type of thing, right? But that's not the God of the Bible, right? We saw that in creation. And it's why it's so important to establish in creation. Right? God is not only the sovereign Lord who creates and speaks out of nothing, but he's a triune God. He's a personal God. He, as the Lord, is ultimately the standard of the universe, the moral standard of the universe. Right? Why are there rights and wrongs? Well, because God is the standard of right and wrong. Right? And we saw in Genesis 3, very briefly, that sin isn't just you know, a little ignorance. Sin isn't just, oh, I made a few step missteps here. Sin is presented from Genesis 3 on as a revolution against God. I said last night that as you look at Genesis 3, it's like the whole created order is overturned. God creates us to rule the world over the animals, but the animals now come to man, and then we try to take the place of God, right? But what does God do? He brings judgment, right? God won't let sin go unpunished. God wouldn't be God, right? He's holy and just and righteous. The Bible makes it very clear that God will not grade on the curve. God won't let bygones be bygones. He will bring full atonement. And from Genesis 3 on, we are removed from God's presence. In some sense, the covenants show us how to get back to God's presence. We have declarations of people being made righteous and declared righteous. Abraham is a good example of that. But there is a major, major problem sort of underneath, bubbling underneath the surface in the Old Testament story, is what's the ground for people to be declared forgiven? What's the basis for them to actually be forgiven? 
What did Abraham do or offer or how did he atone for his sins? He believed the promises of God. We have hints that God will provide. We see it in the sacrificial system of the old covenant. But this is why this promise here set over against the old covenant is so important. If one is really attuned to the Old Testament one would begin to realize that I can offer these lambs over and over. And the very fact that they were done over and over and over again was already instructing the people, this doesn't bring full atonement. Right? Now, the author of Hebrews will pick this up. The apostle Paul will pick this up. But it's already there in the Old Testament. The priests are fallen. They're, they're fallen. The priests live and die. They have to atone for their own sins. The atoning of uh, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament is of lambs that ultimately can't represent you. This is why in shadow and in teaching, God anticipates a provision of a greater one, another one. This is why the prophets will already begin to speak in Isaiah, for instance, of the servant of the Lord who will lay down his life and offer an atonement for sin because under the old covenant, it's as if sin, sin is forgiven, but it's almost as if the payment of sin is postponed. That's precisely what the apostle Paul says in Romans 3. But God can't keep doing that forever. If there is going to be a remedy to sin, if there is going to be an overturning of the curse, if there is going to be a defeat of sin and death, a right reconciliation with God and everything in this world made new, sin has to be dealt with in full. And the prophets are now holding out hope. Right? There is coming in the future a forgiveness of sins where it says here, God says, I'll remember their sins no more. Now, just as we had in Genesis 2 where God rests and he's not tired. He's resting because he's enjoying, entering into enjoyment. God not remembering sins is an amnesia, right? It is speaking in this context that finally, finally, what was all of the repetition of the Day of Atonement for? What was all of the tabernacle and temple pointing to? It was pointing to the need for a final atonement, a final sacrifice, one to come who would bring the rule of God to this world, but would also be a priest, who would also stand on our behalf and obey for us. This promise here is anticipating the full atoning effect of sin. That's precisely how the author of Hebrews picks this up in chapter 9 and 10. You see this even in hint form. David, we mentioned, uh, Trent mentioned David last time. Psalm 51, very interesting in Psalm 51. Right? David is confessing his sin with Bathsheba. It's very important to realize that the sin that he committed with Bathsheba and his murder against Uriah the Hittite was what in the Old Testament was called a high-handed sin. Right? Under the Old Covenant sacrificial system, there was no provision of high-handed sins. There was no offering that you could make for it. It's very interesting in Psalm 51, what does David appeal to, to ultimately deal with his sin? He appeals to God alone. God, you must cleanse me. You must wash me. He doesn't say, oh, I've gone and done my offer, my sacrifice to the high priest. He says, you and you alone must atone. And the reason he says that 
is because ultimately the forgiveness of our sins, God himself is going to have to meet his own righteous demand against us. God himself is going to have to provide his own solution to sin that's bound up with himself. That is why in the Old Testament, the king and the priest that is anticipated already is not just merely a human, yet is now identified with God himself, the son of God, the great king who will rule, who will offer his life, who will bring a full atonement for sin. Now that's what the prophets look forward to. And if you flip over to Matthew 1, that's precisely who Jesus is. Matthew chapter 1 begins, and we begin here simply because it's picking up, right, the storyline of the Old Testament, tying it back to the covenants. But notice even here, it's presenting Jesus not only as Messiah, but in a category all by himself. He is already, even in the description of his messianic nature, his humanity, It's already beginning to point that he's greater than this. He's greater than this. He is the son also from eternity who now takes on our humanity. So in Matthew chapter 1, we have the opening verse, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, right? Tying you back. He is the true Messiah, right? And then you announce his birth. Even the genealogy is significant, but we won't look at that. Verse 18, the birth is announced. And his birth is unique. It's virgin born. And the whole, con- the whole s- setting of this is set within the Old Testament. The angel appears, in this case, to Joseph. In Luke 1, he appears to Mary. But here he appears to Joseph. And Joseph probably needed some convincing here of what was going on with Mary. But he addresses him as son of David in verse 20. He says here that you are to take her as his wife because she has not been unfaithful to you. What is conceived in her is from, don't miss the language here. What is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Any, old, any Jewish person who knew the Old Testament would already be thinking of the prophetic era. The prophets We're looking to the future when the Spirit would be poured out first upon Messiah. There would be such an action of God in the future, and this is what is being announced here. And then notice in verse 21, you cannot read this apart from the new covenant promise. She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. What's Jesus? Ultimately, Jesus is the Lord saves. It's the form of Joshua, You will name him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. That's, that's the new covenant promise, right? This isn't just, sort of, oh, well, he'll bring it over. No, he is bringing to pass all that the prophets have anticipated. The spirit of God will be active. This new, this one who comes as Messiah will bear sin. He will bring salvation. He is of the Lord. And of course, as it then works in verse 22, it's rooted in Old Testament expectation. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said to the prophet The virgin will be with child and will give birth to his name. You will call him Emmanuel. What is that doing? It's saying this whole coming into uh, the incarnation is now brought in fulfillment of Old Testament expectation. This one is not just the king. He is that, but he is God with us. Now, of course, John's gospel makes that very clear, doesn't it? John 
begins his gospel by going back to eternity. If you're to understand who Jesus is, you must understand that he is, yes, the messianic king. He is the one who comes in the promised line, but he's also the word or the son from eternity. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, there's a father-son relationship there. But this father-son relationship, we've seen father-son relationships in the Bible, that's tied more to the humanity of Christ, but this son is now eternal son. And he's the son from eternity who now was with God, who is God, and who becomes John 14, flesh, who now dwells among us and does a work and brings about our salvation. Or even think of Matthew's gospel, how Everything from, from the virgin conception on is all tied to Old Testament fulfillment. His baptism, he receives the voice of the Father quoting Psalm 2 and placing it upon him. As he gives the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus stands up and says, um, I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets, I've come to fulfill them, which means all of the Old Testament is now reaching its fulfillment in me. That is the most audacious claim imaginable. But here is the king who comes who is more than just the king, the human king. Or think of Matthew 11. This is very, very similar to what you have in John 1. Jesus now in this whole chapter is is, is speaking of his relationship to John the Baptist. He's looking at, in some sense, all the prophets who preceded him. He says incredible things about John. John is in prison. Uh, John's about to be beheaded, but John's in prison, and he was the forerunner of Messiah. And John is uh, wondering a little bit of why he's in prison. If he's the forerunner of Messiah, why is he not, uh, you know, keep announcing the Messiah and out and doing his business? This Messiah is supposed to be king, and Jesus has to correct some of his misunderstandings and say, John... John, your trust in me is correct. You know, you're going to have to wait. There must be a cross first and so on. And then he says in verse 11, he speaks of John the Baptist in the most glorified terms. He says, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John. That's quite a statement. All of the previous prophets, the Elijahs, the Isaiahs, and so on, they don't even compare to John. But he who's least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then he goes on to tell you why. Verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. See, what Jesus is saying here is John is the most significant because he has the supreme privilege of standing at a certain place in history where he's able to look at Jesus face to face and say, there he is. That was the hope of Israel. That was the hope of the prophets that he's now here. Isaiah couldn't do that. Isaiah was 700 years before Christ. Ezekiel couldn't do that, but John could. And then what does Jesus then say about himself? At the end of chapter 11, he speaks of himself in one with the Father. He says in verse 27 of Matthew 11, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those whom the Son chooses to reveal. Well, this sonship is more than just human. He is human. He comes as seed of David and son of Abraham and the last Adam, and he comes to bring about our salvation, but he now also is eternal son, who then in verse 28 goes back, in some sense, I think, to the original creation. The salvation that he brings is described as bringing rest, right? 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble. I will give rest for your souls. All of that comes out of Old Testament prophetic expectation. Jesus is the one who is both Lord and king. So the Old Testament holds out hope that the Lord will save, but the Lord now becomes identified with the Son. The Father and the Son, the eternal Son, now takes on our humanity to redeem us. Well, if you turn to the book of Hebrews, just alerts you to, as we finish here, just a couple of passages. There's so many passages in the New Testament that show how Jesus is the fulfillment and all of the prophets and all of the scriptures are leading to him. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 1 begins a kind of panoramic view of Old Testament history, looking at how everything now has come to pass in Christ. He says in verse 1, in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets many times and in various ways. There's your Old Testament revelation, but... In these last days, that's an Old Testament term, that's a prophetic term. Last days for the prophets is what comes in the future. When God reigns through his king, in these last days, God has now spoken finally, definitively, in the Son. Who is this Son? Heir of all things. Creator of the universe, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation After he provided purifications for sins, he sat down. Here you have in this one passage, the deity and humanity of the son brought side by side. Who is this son? Well, he's the son who's the agent of creation. He's the son who sustains the world by his word. He's the son who became heir by taking on our humanity and winning back what Adam didn't win. He becomes the priest who sits down after he provides purifications for sins. He sits down because now Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled. He sits down because there's nothing more for him to do. He sits down because his work is complete. He sits down because when he goes to the cross, the temple veil rents in two. The old system has come to its end. It's reached its point in fulfillment in the death and resurrection of the Son of God who's now brought a complete new covenant atonement and fulfillment. You see this in Hebrews 2 as well. Hebrews 2, in some sense, verses 5 through 18, if you were to work through this, in some sense gives you the entire storyline of the Bible in brief. (laughs) Right there, there's a lot of passages that do that in the New Testament. But notice in this passage here, it speaks about Jesus as greater than angels. Why is he greater than angels? Well, verse 5, because angels don't bring the world to come. Now, what's the world to come? Well, that's from the prophets. The prophets looked forward to the world to come, the future, when God would make all things new, that he would send his king, that the Lord would reign, that he would bring salvation, that all of his promises would be brought to pass. No angel does that. All that angels do, they just serve. But this one comes, and what does he do? He frames it all in terms of Psalm 8. There's a place where someone testified, what is man that you're mindful of? And this is important. This goes back to last night in creation. Psalm 8 is a creation psalm. Psalm 8 is a psalm that celebrates our role in creation, yet we usurp that role. We lost that role. So what has the Son of God come to do? Well, if you look halfway through verse 8, 
It says here that it speaks of us not ruling over the world. And then in verse 9, but we see Jesus. Jesus has come to undo the work of the first man. We see Jesus who is made a little lower than angels. He became incarnate. He's crowned with glory and honor. He suffers death so that he may taste death for everyone. All of this is really picking up the storyline of Scripture. Here is the seed of the woman. This is why the Son of God had to become man. He had to become man in order to redeem us, to represent us, to obey for us. But he could not just be a man by himself. He had to also be God the Son. There's no other way for God to forgive us than God to do it. And so he brings both together. And if you read through 10 through the rest of the chapter, what does he do as a result of his work? He brings many sons to glory. He restores us. He becomes the author, the pioneer of our salvation, the trailblazer. He makes us, though, the ones who defeat death. You see that in verse 14. And he does that by becoming a merciful and faithful high priest through his life incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, his glorious ascension, his pouring out of the Spirit. He brings all of God's promises to pass. Yes, he's still coming again. There's more. We still live in an inter-advental age where we're still awaiting the consummation. But because Jesus has come, because he has obeyed and died and been raised for us, salvation is now complete. The new covenant has now come. God no longer, anyone in Christ, no longer remembers their sins. Atonement is full. It is now paid for. All of the saints of old who were justified in some sense, without their sin being fully paid for, oh, it's all paid for now. Right? Abraham truly is justified. and David is justified. But it's now grounded in the coming of the Son of God who has now brought about all of God's promises to pass in himself. Well, this is Jesus. This is how the Bible speaks of him. This is what the New Testament unpacks for us. The Son of God from eternity who becomes Son in our humanity, who does a work that we can't do. The one who becomes the perfect, obedient covenant keeper for us. That's why in Galatians 4, he comes under the law to obey it for us so that we can be redeemed, we can be forgiven. We see in Scripture that forgiveness is no small thing. Right? To be right with God, to be reconciled to Him, that's, that's an amazing thing because of who God is, only God can reconcile us to Himself, but He's done that not by giving us just another David or just another lamb or just another you know, individual. He's given us his own dear son, his own dear son who has acted for us as our substitute, who has paid for all of our sins in full, who cried from that cross, it is finished. So that in Christ, the apostle Paul can say, we are just. We have a righteous standing because of him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what the gospel is, isn't it? In this individual alone, there is salvation. Our world tries to have all kinds of saviors, all kinds of ways to God, but if you follow out what Scripture says, there could be only one person who can meet our need and one person alone. As the Son of God from eternity who becomes man, the Word become flesh, to live for us, die for us. There's no other way of salvation other than in Him. And may we be found in Him alone, 
trusting his work alone, by faith alone, solely because of God's grace alone. We don't contribute anything to his work. We receive it by faith with empty hands and say, you paid it all, you did it, you have brought all of the promises of God to pass, I made right with you, we anticipate the new heavens and new earth, I'm part of your family, we are recipients of grace because God has done it all from beginning to end and Christ has done it all from beginning to end. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Your dear Son, who you knew from all eternity, who shared your glory, yet the Son was willing to take on our flesh, to add to himself our humanity in order to, in that humanity, to redeem us, to be that seed of the woman, to fulfill all the promises and all the shadows and all the types and figures, to bring the old covenant which anticipated forgiveness of sins, yet never could deliver it. He has brought it to full so that in Jesus Christ we are complete. We have a glorious Redeemer, one who will never fail, one who meets our every need, one who uh, will keep us to the end. Oh, help us to rejoice in him today. What a privilege it is to be found in Christ Jesus. And we do pray that if there's anyone who's outside of him, who does not have faith in him, that they would realize that there's only one way of salvation. There's only one way we became made right with you, that we cannot just have our sins overlooked. They must be paid for in your Son, who is God equal with yourself, who has taken our place. Oh, may we find our rest in him this day for his glory, for our good. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.